Patriots. You are tuned into Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today we will cover the impact of California's AB5 bill on your life, how the ruling against drop boxes in Wisconsin is only a partial win, we'll have a quick economy update, and we'll finish up with the one thing conservatives need to avoid in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Next, I'm Living with Liberty. Supreme Court declined to hear a case as to whether California Bill AB5 violates the FAA Authorization Act of 1994 and specifically how that law applies to independent truckers. If California Governor Gavin Newsom doesn't delay enforcement of California AB5, then supply chain issues will get a whole lot worse. AB 5 was passed in 2019 to, in essence, eliminate independent contractors. Think gig economy workers like Uber drivers, DoorDashers, etc. That's who this bill was really targeted after. Now, in reality, AB 5 is an attempt to get these gig workers on company payrolls so then the unions can go to work on them and attempt to get them to form or join the union. So then union bosses can extract compulsory dues to filter to the Democrat Party. That's what AB5 is here. You think about a gig worker. They don't want, there's a reason they're a gig worker. There's a reason they're independent. They don't want to be tied down to a company. Independent contractors don't join unions mainly because they like that freedom of being independent. They like being able to say, as an Uber driver, I want to work today or no, I don't want to work today. So California decided it was a good idea to start legislating people into unions. So they came up with AB5. Now, you may be saying, Ryan, how will AB5 impact our supply chains? It sounds like it's mainly geared towards gig workers. Well, that law applies to truckers who are owner-operators as well. Those are independent folks that some have one truck, some have 10 trucks. It just depends uh, but they're outside and, and of uh, those large companies. They don't work in the large companies like your J.B. Hunts or Schneiders or Werner's or whoever else is out there in the, in the trucking industry. So it applies to those owner-operators as well. And what this law 
if it's going into effect as as uh, expected here, the law threatens to sideline 70,000 drivers in California. Now, that means that an industry already short on labor would get even shorter on help. And those 70,000 drivers, those are just specifically uh, California-based drivers. Yes, those drivers could go all over the United States, but if their home base is in California, they fall under, under this law. What else is, what else is uh, also unclear about this is what's the impact on owner-operators who drive into California? Uh, that, that's a whole other thing that is also under consideration, needs to be uh, specified here in, in terms of what this bill actually means. So we've got 70,000 more drivers that could be taken off the roads. Now, owner-operators, as I said, they own their own trucks. They could have one truck. They could have two. They could have 10 and just hire people here or there to, to operate their other trucks. They work and secure their own loads ad hoc, uh, or they'll contract out to larger trucking firms. There are a few trucking companies out there that are just asset models, meaning they basically own the trailers and they contract with owner-operators to haul those trailers around wherever uh, they may need to go. Some trucking companies also have dedicated owner-operator divisions where those owner-operators are contracted long-term by the trucking company. Now, Schneider National is one that I've worked with in the past that has both their own company fleet as well as a sizable contracted driver operation. Now, little inside tip here, if, you, if you're going down the highway, you know Schneider's pretty famous for having the big orange trucks. If you see one that's not orange with uh, Schneider National on the side of it, uh, that's one of their owner operators. Uh, so just a little inside tip there. You may, may, or not, may or may not find that interesting, but there you go. I'll give it to you anyway. Now, additionally, a lot of drivers who pick up and move containers from the ports are also owner-operators. And this is where things get really interesting. Now, there, yes, there is a ton of freight that comes out of California uh, from warehouses, uh, especially regional warehouses, the, the whole area around Los Angeles. Is, uh, there's a lot of warehouses around there just because of the ports and everything else. And a lot of companies send their... Uh, uh, product into those warehouses in uh, Los Angeles for regional distribution. So you have a lot of activity just around Los Angeles in, in and of itself. So you've got the containers that come in from overseas. They need to be moved either to their final destination or to a rail yard. There are rail yards at the ports, but, you know, you've got truckers moving them uh, back and forth, you know, within that rail yard or even to rail yards outside the ports. So you need a truck to do that. Uh, in order to get that product to the interior on the train to get it to the interior of the United States. That all requires a truck and a truck driver to handle it. I covered a while back the issues we had in getting containers moved from the ports. I uh, wrote a, I even wrote a blog post on that last, I think, October or something like that. Those previous issues that we've had, uh, all leading out of the COVID shutdowns and everything else and the whole backup of ships off our our coast and everything else all those previous issues caused missed windows for sale and retail a lot of that stuff was seasonal items coming in seasonal merchandise for christmas or thanksgiving or whatever 
So the retailers retailers then had to warehouse that seasonal merchandise until the next season, which is now they're starting to pull some of that out now and and get it ready for sale this year. Consumer preferences have changed. Who knows if they're going to want to buy last season's uh, Christmas decor, right? So there, this all has implications. If you can't move the shipment from the port, from uh, the rail yards to their destination, you miss sales. You miss the season. Uh, we're seeing it now. Inventories are are piling up at the retailers with things like clothing that are now not in uh, consumer preference anymore. You, you had, like I said, last uh, even last year, shelves at Christmas were empty for certain things. Now, we're starting to see a little bit of a balance return to the trucking market. Supply chains are slowly uh, starting to get back to some semblance of, of operation, of normal operation. Not there yet. Don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. It's, it's definitely not there yet, but we're starting to see some things start to uh, get balanced back in. And, and um, we'll start to see things start to normalize here. Now, yes, this is, I think, happening because we have a recession. We're in a recession. I firmly believe seeing the numbers, the inflation numbers that just came out, I'm fully expecting to see our GDP numbers uh, be another negative quarter when they come out. should be shortly here. I think we're middle of July, so it should be coming out shortly here. So, some of this is because we're in a recession, but you you know it's still we're starting to see things normalize a bit. Now the last thing we need with this that we're starting to see some recovery is this California law to take effect and take a huge number of drivers off the road. The shipments that are starting to come in now and that will be coming in over the next few months are those Christmas seasonal shipments again. If there's no trucks to move them from port because of yet another short-sighted policy decision made to appease a special interest group, then we can expect another holiday season of shortages and retailers whose inventories, I said, are, are already growing to add to those inventories because their deliveries miss the seasonal window yet again. The, the, the retailers aren't just going to throw the stuff out. They paid for it. They want to get you know, the, the sale on it. They'll just put it back into storage for the next season or maybe try and clearance it out at the end of the season if it comes in in time. But they're not making their their best uh, margin on that product at that point. It just continues to perpetuate the issues that we see with the economy then when you do these sorts of things. Now, the shortage in available trucks and why this is a, a big deal uh, will also worsen inflation because now... Uh, the the price again the price of uh, of trucking will go up the price of getting your product from point A to point B will go up the and you think about how many trucks carry those things along the way you have a truck maybe from the port to the rail yard you have a a truck from the rail yard to the the retailer's warehouse you have a truck from the retailer's warehouse to their store that all. Uh, takes trucking capacity. The, the re, a lot of the reasons we've seen inflation is those trucks, all those trucks run on fuel, and you've got, what I say, like three there just in that instance, three trucks handling a product before it even gets to the shelf. 
so costs just continue to increase. This stuff just continues to worsen inflation. You know what? This is certainly something to watch. It impacts us all. You might have been saying at first, this is just a California deal. Well, yeah, the law's in California, but it, it impacts us all because trucks go everywhere. Whether they stay in California, they're still moving goods there that are coming to us here in the interior of the United States. So we need to keep an eye on this. And if you're in California, I'd encourage you to uh, write Gavin Newsom, write whoever else might have some influence and say, do not let this bill go into effect as it stands right now. It's going to cause major issues for the rest of the country. If you're listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right, moving on. So we had a large win, albeit a mixed win. I'll get into why it's a mixed win here in a minute. But we had a large win for voter integrity here in Wisconsin that I do think will have far-reaching effects in other states with similar voting laws. Also, as I said, with that big win came a major disappointment, mainly within our judicial system. And that we will focus on that in a minute. But first, I want to get to the big win. So our state Supreme Court has ruled that the drop boxes used in the 2020 election were illegal according to state statute. Now, long story short here, a good chunk of us already knew that. We knew our elections commission had no authority to make up election laws, only enforce the ones that the legislature had passed. Yet the elections commission did it anyway, said, go ahead, county clerks and town clerks, use the drop boxes, they're fine. And our feckless legislature let them get away with it. Our Supreme Court also ruled that according to our state statute, ballot harvesting is illegal in Wisconsin. And this is what they noted. It's, uh, the Supreme Court ruling said this. The WEC exceeded its statutory authority when it declared that voters could hand off their ballots to third parties rather than personally deliver their own ballots to election officials. Again, this is another piece of the law that many of us figured out after uh, investigation into it because we had some instances of ballot harvesting that had been violated by the WEC, our Wisconsin Elections Commission, and that our legislature let them get away with. Now, my favorite part, and something we all need to remember, is this, which Margot Cleveland of the Federalist uh, writes in a piece that I will link in the description box. It's a longer piece, but well worth the read. She writes this, In reaching this conclusion, the High Court highlighted several points that large swaths of the country appear to have forgotten, writing this, Voters are entitled to have the elections in which they participate administered properly under the law. It added that allowing WEC to administer the 2022 elections in a manner other than that required by law causes doubts about the fairness of the elections and erodes voter confidence in the electoral process. If the right to vote is to have any meaning at all, elections must be conducted according to law, the Wisconsin High Court continued. In fact, they continue on, the right to vote presupposes 
the rule of law governs elections, and if elections are conducted outside of the law, the people have not conferred their consent on the government. Such elections are unlawful and their results are illegitimate. And because Wisconsin voters and all lawful voters are injured when the institution charged with administering Wisconsin elections does not follow the law, leaving the results in question. So the Supreme Court concluded that voters had su uh, suffered an injury here. They said that because it was outside this this uh, 2020 election was administered outside the bounds of what we in Wisconsin, what our representatives, what we the people said is, is election law. Voters suffered injury there. And in essence, the elections of 2020 are unlawful and meaning their results are illegitimate. It goes back to we the people have the power. We uh, transfer that power to our representatives to make laws on our behalf, and then we have a bureaucracy here who didn't follow those laws that were made on our behalf. So yes, our us voters did suffer injury by our voting laws being ignored by a corrupt bureaucracy, and in essence, our legislature who ignored what that bureaucracy was doing. And our, our state Supreme Court recognized that fact in this ruling. Now, that's the good news. What that means for uh, the decertification movement here, I have no idea. Yes, according to this ruling, the way it's reading to me is it can be held that our election was invalid given that the laws of administration of elections were broken. So that means... The election's null and void here in Wisconsin for 2020. It's caused the calls for decertification of our results to grow louder. You know, not surprising. Now, if it does happen right now, the way things are going, honestly, I put that chance of it happening at slim to none. It will most certainly be ceremonious at this point. It'll just say we decertified our election election laws were broken. We're not going to hold the election again. Joe Biden's still going to be president. It may mainly be a ceremonious gesture at this point. Now, that's not to say it wouldn't be an important gesture at this point, because it will say, hey, look, we the people are standing up and saying, this isn't right. Our election laws were broken. This needs to be fixed immediately. And this cannot happen again. So from that perspective, you know, the ceremonious piece of it, the symbolic uh, nature of it is, uh, you know, good in that respect. But as far as getting any actual change in who's president, let's be real, that's not going to happen. So the win here is we've, like I said, we've got exposure, laws were broken. We've got the court on record saying our laws were broken. Big win. We got the court saying drop boxes and ballot harvesting are not allowed by our state statute. So by that ruling, our next election should be more secure. People should feel uh, confident in that. But the reason I say it's a bit, uh, only a partial win, it's a big win. That, that first half there is a big win, no doubt. That's a big win. Uh, and as I look at this and as I read the Margot Cleveland piece, again, I, I, am, I urge you to go and read that. It's a really great piece. Um, there's a bigger issue here. And the bigger issue is how the justices ruled 
on this decision that election laws were broken. And the way they ruled just shows how deep the ideological divide in our courts is and shows how much court rulings are just ideological rulings at this point. So this decision on the legality of drop boxes and ballot harvesting in our in our state in Wisconsin the decision supreme court decision was 4-3 and it was along what you would call ideological lines so it would it was the conservative the so-called conservative justices concurring on the majority opinion and the liberal justices dissenting how can we have rule of law in this country if in a case like this, where it is cut and dry as to who makes election laws, what those election laws are, and who has the authority to administer those election laws, how can we have confidence if there's not a unanimous consent in a case like this where it's so clear-cut that laws were broken? In a case like this one where there is clearly no statutory provision for drop boxes and ballot harvesting. It's not explicitly uh, authorized anywhere. How can you have three of the seven judges with an opinion that election laws were not broken? How can we have three of the seven judges with an opinion that drop boxes and ballot harvesting is legal? I looked at the statutes myself way back then and can point out where it clearly states that in the in Wisconsin, you can't have third parties turning in massive amounts of ballots. You can have a family member do it, and that's it. You can't have a, someone bringing in hundreds of ballots. It's illegal. Yet our legislature let them get away with it anyway. They didn't do anything. I can understand now if there was a case... Uh, and, there, and if this was a case where there was no precedent or the law was unclear, I can understand having a split decision under those uh, circumstances. But the WEC, it's clear, has no authority to create election law, only enforce it. And we have three justices who think differently, and it's clearly based along ideological lines. It's clear in our law, no drop boxes, no ballot harvesting. Legislature administers election law. WC only can give direction based on what the law says currently. They can't just make things up. If we cannot have unanimous decisions on issues of law, especially law that's clear-cut and established, and, we, and, and who holds the authority to make those laws, then what kind of confidence should we expect to have in our justice system? If our justice system can't say unanimously, yes, the legislature makes the laws, WEC, useless bureaucracy that you are, can only enforce those laws. You cannot give guidance outside those laws. If, if we can't have all seven of our Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin saying that, then how can we have confidence in our justice system? It, it's obvious at this point, our justice system on from state level on up to the federal level, has been corrupted. And that ideologues have a grip on it. So I'm under no grand illusion that there's, there's been any other lens uh, used to look at these laws other than a political one. But 
how can we expect to have any sort of confidence in that uh, in that environment? We can't. The Supreme Court, I think, is getting things. The uh, United States Supreme Court is getting things right. They've certainly moved uh, moved more towards that originalist intent of the the Constitution, and hopefully that filters down to the states. Yeah, there's some decisions that some of those justices have made that, uh, you know, we don't like them. But if it's based in constitution, uh, constitutional authority and law, then, okay, you know, maybe we need to look at the Constitution and what it says and, and work to change the laws then. You know, that's how this works. We don't put activists on the bench. We use the tools we have within the Constitution, within our state Constitution, within our state and federal laws to make these decisions. That's why they're there. We don't, we don't just have justices you know, on the bench to, to make you know, up a ruling because that's how they feel that day. So, yeah, it's obvious. I'm under no grand illusion. Our, our justice system is corrupt at certain points. We have good ones out there, no doubt. We're moving in the right direction, I feel like. But at the same time, there's still a lot of corruption out there. It's not reasonable to expect anyone to have confidence or respect in a justice system that clearly picks winners and losers based on ideology and how that justice feels that day. Justice is to be blind and unbiased. When there's a clear line of authority, as granted by the law, then there needs to be unanimity in that decision. The fact that the case here in Wisconsin was a 4-3 decision based on ideological lines cast serious doubt on the validity of our justice system. Dissenting opinions are fine for times, again, when the law isn't clear or precedent hasn't been set. But this wasn't one of those times, and it just further exposes just how rotten our whole system has become. Okay, a quick economy update. Jobs numbers uh, just came out, I believe it was this past week as are the inflation numbers, and they are ugly. The Biden regime is pointing to those recent job numbers and the low unemployment rate as evidence that our economy is doing well and that we are not in a recession. Don't buy that for a second. Jobs are the lagginess of lagging indicators in a recession. Unemployment is always at its lowest point at the beginning of a recession. And right now we have... Uh, not only low unemployment rate, but we have the lowest labor participation rate we've had in 50 years. So I don't even believe that unemployment rate at whatever it was, 3.6%, I think was the last number I saw. I don't even believe that because our labor participation rate is, is the lowest it's been in 50 years. So we're probably, I would guess, having looked at the numbers, we're probably about two percentage points low on our unemployment rate right now, just as a hazarding a guess. Um, so I don't believe it for a second. It, it's been clear we're in a recession. Inflation's 9.1%. That's even worse than they were projecting. So don't buy it for a second that we're not in a recession. Now, I have an article here from Liz Ann Saunders. From, uh, it's actually from the Charles Schwab website. It's worth the read to understand all the nuances of the job numbers. It is kind of written in uh, in terms of uh, the audience being investors, so it's a little uh, nuanced. It's a little um, I, what do you, jargony, I would say. But 
still well worth the read. There's a lot of charts in there too to help kind of clear up, uh, you know, any uh, any confusion you might have in in reading the article itself. So here here's what the facts are: inflation just hit another 40 year high. So that means we are likely looking at the Fed doing another minimum 0.75% rate hike, if not going with a full-on 1%, because I think, I don't know that we've peaked out yet on the inflation, actually. I don't know that we've peaked out yet. It'll be interesting to see if the Fed, what they're thinking, because I think if they go above 0.75%, they are also thinking that we haven't peaked out on inflation yet. So if they go at the full-on 1% or higher, then we probably haven't peaked out on inflation numbers yet. Eventually it'll, eventually I think it'll, um, it'll level off. It won't start going down right away. Uh, I think we're in for a long haul here, but uh, at some point it'll level off, but we'll see the same numbers month over month for a while before it starts going down. So we've got the fed. I think they're going to do 0.75% rate hike. If not, going to a full percent, maybe even more. We'll see. Uh, that Those numbers come out in a couple of weeks, I believe, is when they're meeting. And the job forecasts themselves have actually been revised downward the last two months. So what does that tell you? That tells me, and should tell you, or will tell you now because I'm going to tell you, that we are in a recession. Jobs are starting to dry up. They revised them downward the last couple months, the forecast. So, and, uh, you know, to boot, unemployment is always at its lowest point at the beginning of a recession, which is where we are right now. We're going to hit an inflection point possibly as early as the back half of this year where we will start to see those uh, overall reported job numbers dropping. Now, they're covering it up a bit now with, like I said, with, uh, revised forecast down, and and we're still kind of in that inflect in that point where uh, companies are still hiring. They're still maybe not seeing uh, the fact that their demand is going to drop off here with this recession. But eventually, I think it'll be could be as soon as the back half of this year, we'll start to see those overall reported job numbers dropping. We'll start to see unemployment creeping up. As I said a couple of shows uh, shows ago. From a job standpoint, I don't know how many jobs will actually be lost, how many layoffs will happen, versus the fact that companies will just pull down job postings because uh, there's been such a labor shortage due to the low participation rate in the workforce. There's still tons of jobs unfilled. We might see those get taken down, those job postings taken down, and jobs that were posted to be filled not get filled um, versus massive job losses that we've seen in previous recessions. Um, it'll be interesting to see because, I, like I said, that dynamic is is uh, where we're at now economically is very interesting. Um, will there be jobs lost? Yes, uh, absolutely. There'll be jobs lost. We're starting to see it now. I think Tesla laid off a bunch of uh, folks. There's been other companies. You know, and the other thing here is, do we start to see some of these people not in the workforce today? So, like I said, that participation rate's low. Do we start to see them looking for work because their savings ran out, because the inflation ballooned out of control? Now their savings ran out. Now they start actively looking for a job, and now they become part of that unemployment rate statistic. And that 
is what drives the unemployment rate up as opposed to massive layoffs. All that is, it could be. It, like I said, it's an interesting time right now economically in the job market. Will we, absolute, uh, will we still see layoffs? Absolutely, we'll still see layoffs. People will still lose their jobs in companies that, uh, you know, that are, are not um, as ready for a recession, that aren't as fiscally strong. Uh, we are already seeing demand shifts from uh, the consumers and drops in uh, the sales of, of the big retailers because people are reducing those impulse purchases. They're reducing their discretionary spending because they have to spend more on the necessities. So we're starting to see all this right now. The, the other key point here, another big thing, mortgage rates are ballooning now and poised to go up further with the next Fed increase. Uh, we could see them reaching 8% before long. Uh, last I looked a couple days ago, they were about 55 to 6%. Now, the Fed takes the interest rate up another 0.75, certainly another 1%. We could see them creeping upon 8%. That's going to have a major impact on those with adjustable rate mortgages. Those that get like a, a 3-1 or 5-1 arm, which, you know, they pay a really low rate for the first three or five years. And then they either have to pay off that, you know, whatever's left of that mortgage or they convert it to a 30-year, uh, 15 or 30-year fixed. Well, they may have gotten in at that adjustable rate mortgage, you know, three or five years ago when the mortgage rates were, you know, somewhere between 3 and 4% on, uh, you know, I don't know, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 house. Now it's going to balloon up to six or seven or eight. I mean, that's, we're going to see losses uh, in the housing market. We're going to see a, potentially another housing crash because of that. I don't know how many of those. I think, you know, I've seen mixed reports on uh, the kind of lending getting risky or not risky again as things have gone on since the great housing crash or the great recession. But we're going to see, again, that there's going to be uh, some sort of housing crash here because that you're going from a uh, those adjustable rate mortgages they might even be as low as two percent honestly we're going from you know two percent up to an eight percent and then you're going on a, a fixed mortgage beyond that on you know four or five hundred thousand dollars of debt I mean that that's going to be uh, catastrophic for some people they overextend themselves. So it's not going to be pretty. There's not going to be a soft landing from this recession. And it could very well persist for 12 to 24 months, given the current economic landscape, given the inflation. Like I said, inflation eventually will peak. It's not going to come down right away either. It hopefully isn't stubborn like it was in the 70s, but it very well could be. Uh, we could, And it's all going to depend on the policies that get put in place from here on out by uh, the Fed, by our legislators, they need to stop spending money. We don't have. The Fed needs to keep raising interest rates. It's going to be ugly. It's not going to be a soft landing. It's going to persist for a while, but we will get through it. All right, give us a follow on social media. You can follow me on uh, my social media home at Parlor. Uh, my handle there is at Living with Liberty. If you're on Facebook, like the Living with Liberty fan page. Do you have a question or comment for the show? Email me, ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. We'll uh, answer the question or read the comment here on the show.
Okay, last topic for today. I want to issue a warning to conservatives in light of the uh, Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Take the constitutional win. Take the constitutional win. Do not overreach when it comes to state-level restrictions or bans on abortion. Doing so will stop and reverse the momentum the conservative movement has towards turning our rule of law back towards those constitutional principles. It will stop the momentum we have in turning our culture back to something that's called more appropriate and, and more traditional. That traditional is not a bad thing. We need to make sure that momentum isn't stopped by overreach. Don't be hypocrites when it comes to espousing individual freedom and liberty. Now, what makes me say this? There are stories coming out about how certain uh, think tanks, legislators, special interest groups, whatever, now are like sharks with blood in the water, kind of smell, okay, Roe v. Wade's been overturned. Let's see how far we can take this now to totally eradicate abortion everywhere. It's a dangerous and slippery slope. As much as I think abortion should only be used in extremely limited situations and not as a tool to extract oneself from the consequences of a risky decision that was made, it is still a a reality that there are states that will allow abortion and that people will go to those states for abortions. Now, I have an article here from my local paper by Mitchell Schmidt titled Conservatives Exploring Legislation to Block Out-of-State Abortions Stop Medical Abortions in Wisconsin. Now, again, this is an extremely, extremely dangerous position to be taking. It's it's an extremely uh, dangerous thing to be espousing publicly, to even be floating this, this idea out there. Again, I'm 100% pro-life. I, I think it's, it's, abortion should be illegal everywhere. It's murder. But the Supreme Court kicked it to the states. Each state runs itself and will decide from there what the citizens of that state want to allow. That's, that's their right. That's part of living in a federalist system. Now, from a freedom and, labor, like I said, a freedom and liberty standpoint, I do not agree with this stance of trying to restrict out-of-state abortions, stop medicinal abortions one bit. Now, a local think tank here is, also, uh, is already floating ideas on how to allow individuals to sue people who have abortions done in states where it is legal, as well as legislation to clamp down on process uh, access to Plan B pills. Again, this is a horrible idea. Horrible. It's the surest way to light a fire and and lose momentum. To light a fire under the opposition and lose momentum. Not only that, again, it is an infringement on people's freedom and liberty, no matter how sick it is to be going to seek an abortion because of some risky behavior and you uh, engaged in not, you know, the whole medical thing. That's a totally different story. 
Now, I'm pro-life 100%. Like I said, these types of laws would be a violation of the Constitution in my eyes, specifically the Commerce Clause as well as the violation of jurisdiction. One state does not have jurisdiction over what happens when their citizens go and visit another state. It's an obvious power grab, which is something we've been speaking out religiously against uh, religiously here. Now, here in Wisconsin uh, is an example. Let's give a couple of examples here. So here in Wisconsin, it is legal to take your kid into a bar and even buy them a drink if the parent so desires. Now, let's say someone from another state where those things aren't legal is vacationing here, takes their kid to the bar and buys them a drink. Would it be sensible then, once they went back to their home state, for someone who found out that that parent did that, and then that someone, that nosy Nelly, then goes and sues them for violating their state's laws for something that happened out of the state? Another one, another example. Uh, you have enclaves of, of uh, states where marijuana is legal around the country, Illinois being one of them here. So we're, where I live, we're pretty close to the border. So um, you've got a lot of people here that I'm sure are jumping the border, going and buying marijuana and bringing it back. Now, it's one thing if you bring it back and ca- get caught. It's another thing if you smoke it there, um, let the effects wear off and then come back. I mean, w- would that be, that'd be the same thing? If, if I went down to Illinois, I went to one of the dispensaries, bought marijuana, smoked it there, waited uh, till the effects wore off, and then came back so I wasn't under the influence. You know, I did something legal in that state. There, there's no way, no matter who finds out here, while well, Ryan smoked marijuana, he, let's, uh, let's sue him and, um, and take him to court and get him in jail because that's a violation of Wisconsin law. Well, no, I did that in Illinois, and I did not come back under the influence. So, you know, same thing with the, the previous example. That happened within our state. It doesn't matter if, if, if uh, you know, that parent and kid were from another state. That, that happened here. There's, that state has no jurisdiction over what happens here. So would it be sensible that, you know, anybody would sue people in those instances for engaging in illegal activity in one state that might be illegal in another? No, it's, it, there's no legal standing nor jurisdiction to do so. And it would be, in essence a violation of the Commerce Clause because that would be one state trying to regulate commerce in another, which is, uh, you know, you're running into a whole host of constitutional issues there. And like it or not, the same thing applies to this idea of trying to regulate someone getting an abortion in a state where it's legal. Whether you agree with it or not, it is a legal commercial transaction at that point in another state. Just because abortion isn't legal in that person's home state doesn't give that state jurisdiction over that person's actions once they leave the state. Also, this idea of restricting, further restricting medicinal abortions is ludicrous. I look at it like this. Uh, Let me back up a second. In Wisconsin, we've had a law on the books since 1849, I believe, a year after we became a state, somewhere in there. Been a long time. Uh that basically said abortions were illegal in this state. Now, that, that um, law never came off the books. It was never repealed or anything, even in, in, when Roe was in, in, uh, in force. That, that law never was repealed by our legislature at any point in our history. 
for the, in the last 50 years, let's put it, since uh, Roe v. Wade had taken effect. So once Roe v. Wade was overturned, that law went back into effect. And in that law, it does have, yes, abortions are illegal, but it does have provisions for medical, uh, call it a medical exemption. If, you're, if the mom, mother's life's in danger, um, an abortion can be sought. That, there's a provision for that in that law. So now I look at it like this. If you claim to be pro-life, you have to look at these instances, especially with the medical. I'm just speaking about the medical now. You have to look at these instances as a life potentially being saved. If a mother dies, so does the baby, and now you've lost two lives. We don't live in a black and white world where you can just regulate these things away, where you can say it's one or the other. It doesn't happen like that all the time. Are there things that are cut and dry? Yes, like before, the election law, cut and dry. That's black and white. It's right there in the law. This, not so much. Now, you're dealing with life here. You're dealing with risk to life. And if you're pro-life, and I say you got to look at this as an instance, of, especially from a medical standpoint, as a life potentially being saved, that of the mother. Now, there are a lot of times, we'll get into this in a minute, I, I think, here, but the mother has, in that instance, a tough choice. At that point, it's a tough choice. It's a choice on the mom's part. It's not like, well, you have to do this. I'm sure there's many mothers that don't choose to do that if their life is at risk to avoid their child, to save their own life. There's, I'm sure, many mothers that say, no, I'm going to try and carry this to term this uh, baby to term. Certain things are gray in life, especially when it comes to whose life gets saved. There has to be a bit of common sense here, with especially these medical, because they are a rare occurrence. It's what, maybe 1%, maybe less. I, I forget the statistic uh, off the top of my head now, but it's, it's very a very rare occurrence that these are happening. To me, it falls under the safe, legal, and rare mantra we've heard a number of Democrats espouse over the years. That, that's where that falls. And I, again, I think in these types of instances that, you know, not only are they rare, but the mothers are, weigh, are weighing the risks to themselves carrying that child to full term. Carrying uh, that child, maybe even to uh, long enough to... Uh, where the baby can be born and it's viable. They're, they're weighing those risks, and they carefully consider what their doctor is telling them about those risks and the, the risk to their life. So I, it's not even, in that instance, it's not even cut and dry and a guarantee that the mother is going to say, well, yeah, let's ab- abort the baby. Because they're weighing those risks. Having a, a, a child is something that a, a mother wants to do. It's not going to be something they take up lightly where a doctor says, well, your life's at risk, you should abort the baby, and they're going to do it. No, they're going to weigh it out, find out what it means, what are the options. It's, it's always a tough decision, but even in those instances, I think it's tougher. So that's why I think it's, it's a, you know, we got to look at it, the medicinal piece of this here is saving a, a life, and potentially two, right? I mean, it, de- it depends on uh, on a lot of factors on how far that baby can be carried into term and when they can they be born as a premium survive those things all have to be considered and are considered 
the Wisconsin law banning abortions, that's now active again after SCOTUS overturned Roe, does allow, for, like I said, for those medical abortions when a mother's life is in danger, but it requires two doctors to say so. Here's the other, I have a problem with that. I say you only need one in that instance. How many people does it take to see that a light bulb is burnt out and need to be changed? Do you get a second opinion on that? You flip the switch, the light bulb doesn't go on. Do you go and get somebody say, hey, is this light bulb burned out? It's the same thing here. Why would you need a second doctor to determine if someone's life is in danger? It would uh, seem to be that when it comes to something like a pregnancy that has entered the life-threatening category, most OBs have enough experience between the thousand years they spend in school and the career experience uh, gained on the job to be able to tell that without a second opinion. I mean, you know, we've we've been having babies since the dawn of time. I, I would like to think that the doctors are pretty good uh, individually saying, uh, yeah, your life's in danger on this. Now, does that preclude the mother from going and getting a second opinion? No, but do we need to codify it in law that you have to get a second opinion? No. Again, because I go back to the statement before where the mother is going to do everything they can to try and bring that baby into this world. Again, I vehemently disagree with the practice of abortion in all but the rarest of instances. I, this, Like I said, this, this medical situation. So I, I'm not pro-choice here by any means. I, I just happen to see that there's gray areas in this, and we need to be cognizant of that. And we need to, to not overreach. So, yes, I vehemently disagree with the practice, but I will also defend another state's right to set laws in accordance with what the people who live in that state want. Whether I agree with it or not, that's what the people in that state voted for. If they voted that in our state we're going to have legal abortions because, uh, you know, we, we believe in, not, uh, in people not uh, having consequence for risky behavior. Well, that's, that's what they believe in their state. Fine. I, I will defend that state's right because it's, it's a constitutional right. I will also defend the constitutional right of someone to engage in legal commerce in another state, no matter if I agree with what they're doing or not. It, it's not my place to say if they want to go and engage in a, in a transaction in another state, it might be illegal in my state, but legal in that state. Well, I will defend their right to do that. Because that is the essence of living as a free person in a constitutional republic. We all have choices we can make. There's all these different jurisdictions, and I will defend that person's right or that state's right to set laws or to engage in commerce that is legal in that state. That's just the way it is. That's the responsibility we have as living as free people in a constitutional republic. Conservatives need to avoid the temptation here of overreaching in an attempt to prevent residents seeking abortions in other states where it's legal. It's plain and simple. It's a clear trampling of someone's freedom and liberty, something that the GOP is supposedly for, something that is part of the conservative movement. We are supposed to be for freedom and liberty. Yet here we're trying to say, well, now we're going to try and restrict this. 
We're, we're supposed to be for this. It's, it's kind of hypocritical, no? If the GOP legislatures, uh, legislators at the state level do entertain notions of criminalizing out-of-state abortions and, heaven forbid, even attempt to or manage to pass laws trying to regulate residents out of uh, a resident who is engaging in legal activities outside of their state, their expected rise to power will be short-lived since they will be no better than the tyrants they replaced. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.